Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Giants of the Faith podcast. I'm Robert Daniels and I'm the host of this show, where we focus on individuals from the age of the church who have lived out their faith in a unique or interesting way. They are people who are giants in the history of Christendom. These are Christian Hall of Famers. When I started this podcast, one of my goals was to include people other than just the biggest and most recognizable names in Christian history. The Luthers, Pascals, and Calvins, they'll all have their day. But I also want to dive deeper into the vast ocean of Christians that have advanced the kingdom. Today's subject is one of these deep-dive Christians, journalist and author Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm Muggeridge was born March 24, 1903, in Sanderstead, England. He was one of five sons of Henry Thomas and Anne Muggeridge. His father, H.T., was notable for being a socialist, a founding member of the Fabian Society, and an early member of the Liberal Labour Party in Great Britain. The Fabian Society was formed to promote the gradual implementation of socialism. As such, it's no surprise that Malcolm grew up as an ardent believer in socialism and even communism. While studying at Cambridge, he had the side job of teaching at a smaller local college. This led him upon graduation in 1924, to move to India to teach English Lit at a small Christian college there. While in India, Mugridge and Mahatma Gandhi began exchanging letters. The letters kick-started Mugridge's journalism career when he published his first article about them in the magazine Young India. Mugridge briefly returned to Britain in 1927, where he married Kitty Dobbs. After a brief teaching stint in Egypt, Mugridge was hired by the Manchester Guardian. Because of his communist sympathies, he was happy to accept assignment in the Soviet Union to be the Guardian's regular Moscow correspondent in 1932. His motivation was to confirm, as he said, my strongly held opinion that capitalism had irretrievably broken down and the Soviet regime was providing the only convincing alternative. When he arrived in Moscow, and saw the effects of communism firsthand, however, he began to become more critical of the system. He wrote in his personal journal, This is a very low period of my life. Insofar as I was really enthusiastic about communism, I feel now completely disillusioned. Mugridge was disillusioned for several reasons. Stalin was a barbarian, and the West was completely ignoring the purges that were killing millions of Soviets. Governments, the press, and even his personal heroes, like noted atheist George Bernard Shaw, treated Stalin with such deference and respect, for seemingly no reason. And his own newspaper, The Guardian, was changing the stories that he filed to fit with their editorial perspective of communism. Upon hearing rumors of a famine in the Soviet breadbasket of Ukraine and the Caucasus, Mugridge traveled secretly to investigate himself. From 1932 to 1933, there was a targeted famine in the Soviet Union. The government, for political reasons, withheld aid from areas that experienced a poor grain harvest and even confiscated foods from citizens' homes for government use and redistribution. In all, somewhere between 3 and 4 million citizens died during the famine. Ukraine and other nations today recognize the Great Famine as a targeted genocide. Mugridge reported what he saw 
and sent his stories back to England via diplomatic channels that prevented the Soviets from intercepting and editing his reporting. The Guardian published some of his writing anonymously, while the Soviets and their supporters in the global press denied the famine's existence. Walter Naranti even won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting in the New York Times denying the existence of the famine. All of this discouraged Mugridge and pushed him to begin writing novels, including Winter in Moscow, which was critical of both the Soviet regime and the liberal press. Upon the outbreak of World War II, Mugridge joined up as a private, briefly working in the Ministry of Information before moving on to become a military policeman and finally landing in intelligence in 1942 as a lieutenant. He worked in Mozambique and Algiers, trying to keep information about Allied ship movements secret. When Paris was liberated, he was sent to France to aid the French Free Forces. He was assigned to investigate P.G. Woodhouse's Berlin broadcasts. Woodhouse, a noted author and comedian of the time, was a British expat who was living in France when the Germans invaded. He was taken prisoner and was forced to make friendly radio broadcasts from Berlin, aimed at the United States, before the U.S. had even entered the war. Mugridge grew to like Woodhouse, and the two became lifelong friends and correspondents. He also interviewed fashion icon Coco Chanel to determine the extent of her involvement with the Nazi SS. Chanel was never charged as a collaborator, thanks to intervention by Winston Churchill, but information declassified in the 21st century has shown that she did conspire to work with the SS. After the war, Mugridge went back to journalism. He wrote for several publications in the UK and the US, and he moved in and among the who's who of the age, including George Orwell, Ian Fleming, Salvador Dali, Anthony Powell, and others. Mugridge was a critic of the modern age and openly questioned the need for a monarchy in the UK. One such article he wrote for the Saturday Evening Post got him in a bit of trouble, and his writing contracts were largely terminated. The proliferation of television in the 1950s gave him a new avenue to move into. He became a well-known and respected interviewer and interviewed guests ranging from Winston Churchill to Billy Graham. His inquisitive nature soon forced him to question some of the liberal worldview that he'd been raised to accept. He was particularly opposed to the modern obsession with sex. In his essay, Down With Sex, he lamented the promiscuity of the modern age and its anti-Christian attitude. We are to die in the spirit and be reborn in the flesh, rather than the other way around. We have all got sex on the brain, he said, which is a most unseemly place to have it. In the early 1960s, he flirted with becoming a Christian, but he didn't want to give up his drinking, his smoking, his overeating, and other habits. I felt it was necessary that my personal life should not be a disgrace to the Christian religion, he said. In 1967, he declared that we today need faith more than any other thing on earth, surprising his peers and colleagues. He didn't mean for himself, though. He meant in the more general sense, believing that Christianity was the glue that held society together. He appreciated the impact Christianity had on society, from Shakespeare to Dostoevsky, but he was not ready to make it a personal thing. He later wrote, Alas, had I lived in the time of Jesus, I fear I should have been among the scoffers 
and missed the glory of those who heard and saw and believed. That began to change in 1968, while he was profiling Mother Teresa's Sisters of Charity for the BBC. She told him that it mattered not just what one did, but in whose name it was done. She drew a distinction between government welfare policies and good deeds and charity done in the name of Christ. Christian charity was done out of love for the individual. It was Mugridge that brought the attention of the world to Mother Teresa. Mugridge was becoming more and more aligned with the Christian worldview. In his book on Mother Teresa's work, Something Beautiful for God, he wrote, Imagine Bernard Shaw and a mental defective on a raft that will hold only one of them. In worldly terms, the obvious course would be for Shaw to pitch the mental defective into the sea and save himself to write more plays for the edification of mankind. Christianly speaking, jumping off and leaving the mental defective in possession of the raft would give a greater glory to human life itself, of greater worth than all the plays that have ever been or will be written. In 1969, Mugridge publicly converted to Christianity. Up until this point in his life, he'd been a communist, a socialist, a philanderer, famously labeled not safe in taxis because of his penchant for coming on to women, and even a vegetarian. He had been a great sinner for 60 years, but that did not stop him from receiving the forgiveness of the Savior and committing the rest of his life to serving the kingdom of God. He said, In this world, I'm a stranger. I don't belong here. I am staying here for a bit, and it's a very nice place, an interesting place, but I don't belong here. He published a book, Jesus Rediscovered, which is a collection of sermons and essays on Christianity. His conversion did not make him a popular man. Mugridge was rector at the University of Edinburgh when students there demanded the freedom to redistribute illegal drugs and birth control on campus. He stood firm for a time, even in the face of opposition from campus chaplains, of all people but eventually resigned rather than give in to their request. He was learning that Christianity comes at a price, and he was willing to pay it. Mugridge continued writing, now focusing on Christian themes. Several of his books are classics, such as Jesus, The Man Who Lives, and Paul, Envoy Extraordinary. He was critical of liberal atheistic ideas, including evolution, which he called one of the great jokes in the history books of the future. He even had harsh criticism for the Monty Python film, The Life of Brian. In 1974, he produced the television miniseries, A Third Testament, for the Canadian Broadcasting Company. This six-part series focused on the lives of six prominent Christians, Augustine, Pascal, William Blake, Soren Kierkegaard, Tolstoy, and Bonhoeffer. His premise, not unlike that of this podcast, is that the works and lives of these men pointed toward Christ. They were, in effect, a third testament. It's an excellent series that you can watch for free at redeemtv.com. I highly recommend it. In the 1980s, Mugridge covered the rise of the Christian church in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was born anti-religious. It was the great Marxist atheistic society that had the mission to kill off religious belief. It gave Mugridge great delight then to find that the church never died off 
and in the latter years of communism's reign was making a comeback. He said, The strange and mysterious and highly amusing thing is that probably you would have very great difficulty in finding a single Marxist in the USSR. You would only find Marxists among left-wing Jesuits in the faculties of universities of the West, which is one of God's little jokes. In 1982, Mugridge and his wife left Anglicanism behind and joined the Catholic Church. He experienced, as he said, a sense of homecoming, of picking up the threads of a lost life, of responding to a bell that has been long ringing, of finding a place at a table that has been long vacant. His final book, Conversion, was published in 1988 detailing this process. Mugridge died on November 14, 1990. He was 87 years old. I see Malcolm Mugridge as something of a second G.K. Chesterton. He was a man of wit and standing that wasn't afraid to stand on the truth of Christ in a world that was rapidly rejecting him. You do well to check out some of his books, essays, and documentaries. Well, this is the end of another episode of Giants of the Faith. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you've learned something new. Don't forget, you can watch A Third Testament on RedeemTV.com. You won't regret it. If you have any comments or corrections, please send them along to podcast at giantsofthefaith.com. I'd be very happy to hear what you think of the show. Until next time, God bless.